Welcome to Next Gen Now with Rudina Cesare. Your inside track to technology, innovation, and the startup world. Rudina Cesare, managing partner and co-founder of Glasswing Ventures, bridges listeners with the brain trust of the business world, speaking with early adopters and industry-leading innovators. Each week, she gives you a backstage pass to the people designing, building, and marketing the companies, products, and services of the future. Now, your host, Rudina Cesare. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rudina Ceseri, founder and managing partner at Glasswing Ventures, and I invest in early-stage technology startups. You can follow me on Twitter at Rudina11, and that is R-U-D-I-N-A and the numbers 1 and 1. I welcome you, our listeners, to this edition of NextGen Now. Today on the program, we will talk about the new paradigm of pervasive connectivity and how it impacts our lives and society. In this show, we often have innovators and founders of companies who are working on ideas and products that drive this wave of disruption. However, today, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Brad Behrens. Dr. Behrens is a futurist and a historian. He's a senior fellow at the Center for Digital Future at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School, where he directs the Connected Experience Project, and he also consults with companies large and small all over the world. Brett, welcome to the show, if you don't mind by calling you by the direct name, given that you and I are good business colleagues and friends. Of course. Hi, Rudina. Hi, how are you? I'm great. I'm glad to be here. Um, so I think this will be a particularly interesting show, both at a personal level for me, but also for our audiences, because um, I suspect you will cast a very different perspective on topics like the Internet of Everything or Internet of Things, however one wants to label it and where we're headed and the role of AI and all the themes that we've been talking so often on this show. So let me start by perhaps uh, posing a question, a question to frame our discussion. What is the Connected Experiences Project? Um, what does it entail? What's the depth and breadth and longevity of the subjects you were studying? Well, that's a great first question. Thank you for asking. The Connected Experiences Project is part of the Center for the Digital Future. What we've been doing at the center is for the last 16 years, we've been surveying the same 2,000 families here in this country. And then we've been organizing the World Internet Project, which does similar work in over 40 countries all over the planet. So we have an extraordinary longitudinal data set. And that gives you interesting insights about things that non-longitudinal data sets don't. The Connected Experiences Project is taking what we've been doing and expanding it to what is the next wave of the Internet revolution. And that really is, is happening across four different areas. Connected environments, which is how I prefer to talk about IoT, 3D printing, robotics, and wearable computers. In each case, those things are the result of data popping out of the magic mirror that is the cell phone or the tablet or the laptop and coding our entire environment. Behavior changes more slowly than technology and it's more elastic and uh, snaps back into old patterns. And so that's our focus uh, at the center and with the CEP, the Connected Experiences Project. So 
Let's. It's interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about this whole idea of environment as you describe IoT and robotics and wearables. Elaborate a little bit on this notion of environment and why you think of it that way. Well, the reason that I prefer to think about uh, connected environments than the Internet of Things is because if you're talking about the Internet of Things, then you're focused on the things. Whereas if you talk about connected environments, then you're more interested in the humans that are existing in those environments and having the experiences with those things. So that's the reason is I, I prefer to focus on how people are behaving differently, how their opinions are changing, how their behavior is evolving in this complicated dance that we all have with technology. I can give you an example if you like. Yeah, please do. So this is a simple example, but there's this thing called charge rage, which is happening. It's been covered uh, off and on. It's happening mostly in Silicon Valley and other places where there are a lot of uh, electric vehicles. What happens is you have a, a hot company where a lot of people start buying Teslas and Leafs and the BMW electric cars, and they find that there aren't enough charging stations at the various places where they work, and people are getting into fights about it. People are unplugging each other's cars and leaving nasty notes. This one Google employee has created this etiquette kit that people can buy where you know you get a little sign to hang on your car that says, please don't unplug my car. And it's a, it's, it's fascinating to see the unintended consequence of people buying these electric cars, but not understanding that unlike a gas station every mile or so on the highway, there just aren't that many opportunities to charge up. So that's the kind of thing that really interests me. Um, and it interests me with regard to all of these different technologies. So another example uh, would be something that you yourself covered in one of your more recent episodes, which is you talked to the people who founded Owlet. And yes. Owlet is that great little digital sock that tells you if your baby stops breathing. It's a hypothesis, as all of these startups are hypotheses, about behavior and about anxiety. And the thing that will be curious about Owlet over the course of the next couple of years, I think, is – are people going to pay more attention to their phones and the data coming from the sock than they are from the actual living baby that's lying in the crib in front of them? So what are the societal sort of, uh, what does that do for our society? How does it impact our behavior? What are the new norms? The, the new norms are constantly evolving. Let me give you an example about changing behavior from the big survey. The big survey came out in December and we saw a significant more, you know, double digit decline in the number of people who feel ignored or otherwise isolated because of the cell phone use of people in their family. So what that means is fewer people are bothered by mom and dad or husband or wife being obsessed with the iPhone or the Crackberry back in the day at the dinner table than they were a couple of years ago. Huge decline between 2013 and 2014. That can mean one of two broad things. The first is that people are behaving better, which I think is rather unlikely, or more likely people have become used to being ignored because everyone is on their phone or more people are on their phones and therefore don't notice that they're being ignored. The biggest question that I have when it comes to most of these things are 
as you get more and more information coming out of more and more devices, that information is very tasty. It's delicious. It's easily accessible. It's urgent, or at least it appears urgent, and it therefore distracts us from where we actually are. Uh, so again and again, we are here but not here, and we're here but not here now because of our phones. But as we get new display technologies, as we get new sources of information, as screens become more pervasive and ever cheaper, we have even more things to look at uh, that are not each other and not what the actual concrete geographic geography and reality is. That's the bad version of this story. There always are two versions, the good one and the bad one. So it's interesting because even as you described the story, you said, has the behavior gotten better? So there was a normative sort of statement in there embedded in that, in your story in that looking at your Blackberry at the time or now iPhones and Androids is a bad – at the dinner table, it's a bad thing, which most people would probably agree. But um, what's a good version of this story? Well, the, what the survey said was that fewer people feel ignored. And, and I think that feeling ignored uh, by your loved ones is, is obviously a negative feeling. Um, my own interpretation was that it, you know, the question is, are people behaving better or not? I think the right. good version of the story, generally speaking, with connected experiences, the thing that's exciting is this notion that we might use the technology to re-embed our experience where we are and to use – Things like Owlet, for example, or other devices as filters so that we can afford to pay more attention and we get nudged into paying more attention to those uh, things that are around us, to the people who are in front of us, as opposed to always sort of looking for the next thing over the shoulder of the person we're talking to now. So that that is actually an interesting notion because as I think about the Internet of Everything, but more importantly, the artificial intelligence layer on top of it, uh, I think we are almost about to take a turn to become more social or to be freed up from things like scheduling and, you know, having to respond to the emails in real time because there will be an increased level of intelligence in this pervasive connectivity world that will help us perhaps prioritize freeing up time to be more social. So I almost want to look at it the positive side because that's how I'm viewing the world. Maybe we're tied to more screens, but maybe not because they're all around us. So we've now become immune to them as opposed to the screen and the screens and what comes with them being the delicious thing as you described it. But um, you also speak of this paradigm as just, uh, you know, transitions in states from solid to liquid then gas. Can you talk a bit about that? I find that notion fascinating. It's a it's an analogy that I think is helpful for people, and I think it's a little bit more concrete than first wave, second wave, and third wave. But if the first wave of the internet was the solid state of the internet, you know, matter comes broadly in in three different uh, phases, you know, solid, liquid, and gas. And so we used to go to the internet back in the dial-up days before we had laptops, before we had cell phones. Usually, you know, in this country, the the computer would have a dial-up connection. It would be in the, the disused room. It would be in the den or the guest room. And you'd go to the internet like you were going to visit another land. Then right. we got pervasive Wi-Fi. We got, you know, the, the biggest thing, and this is what Jeff Cole, who's uh, the director and founder of the center, talks about, that the, 
With broadband, much more important than the speed was the fact that we had Wi-Fi at home and suddenly the laptop was cut loose from the back room and you could have it on the couch with you. And then we had, this is the liquid version of the internet where suddenly you were carrying it all around with you. And of course, it became accelerated with the smartphone. The gas version of the internet is where it is completely pervasive and we're no longer using devices to connect to digital information, but we're using devices to connect to the material environment around us. Whether it's something as simple as talking to your phone and saying, hey Siri, or okay Google, and asking it to do something, or Alexa, which is the little the little person trapped inside of the Amazon Echo, but also things like Nest, uh, the ambient internet. And ambient internet is a phrase coined by my friend Jeff Minsky. Right. And so these are important things. And the reason why I think it's important to think about it about this as gas is that gas is both good and bad. We need oxygen to live, but also if somebody, uh, you know, passes gas uh, in, a, in a small room, it makes things very uncomfortable very quickly. And there's not a lot that you can do about it. So you have to be pretty careful. So it's helpful, I think, to think about it in those terms because it starts enabling you to really pay attention to the environment around you because something can either smell bad or smell good. Interesting. And um, do you, wh- where do we go from gas? You're a futurist. <laughs> well, I, I don't think it's uh, a metaphor that can be pushed that far. It's, it's well, I don't know, if going into quantum mechanics of, of analogy is, is maybe a little bit much. But if you do want to push it, yeah. and, you know, what we, we also have energy as the thing that composes all matter. And as information gets more and more pervasive, uh, it might even become more granular than than a gas. I haven't thought that one through, but uh, it does lead me back to this notion of watching behavior be less quick to change and more elastic and more able to snap into old forms of behavior uh, than the technology often would suggest. So here's another example. I've been fascinated by uh, electronic cigarettes and vaping. It's this new thing, eventually will get regulated, but the thing that I'm most fascinated by when it comes to vaping is that the people think it's okay, people who would never dream of lighting a cigarette up in your home without asking uh, in a public place, will merrily puff away on their e-cigarettes, which are often smelly and have weird odors added to them, and never think to ask. And it's the way smokers used to be before we had a few decades of regulation telling them that this was not okay. And yet the moment we have an alternate form of the same uh, technology, which is, you know, inhaling gas, but in this case it's vapor rather than something burning, they immediately went back to old behavior patterns. I was stunned to see a couple of youngsters vaping as they were walking onto a plane until the flight attendant had a stroke and came and yelled. At them. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Got it. And with that sort of going back to old behaviors, if you will, 
Why don't we take a break at this point, and when we come back, we will continue our, our conversation with Dr. Brett Behrens, futurist and researcher on the very interesting topic of connected experiences. Next Gen Now will return, staying ahead of the technology curve, after a word from our sponsors. Reinventing keyword research, simplifying campaign optimization, redefining competitive analysis, SpyFu brings you an entirely new way to find the most profitable keywords for your SEO and PPC campaigns. New tools, new data, and a brand new look. We've streamlined SpyFu so that you can optimize your search engine marketing more efficiently, more accurately, and more intuitively. Visit SpyFu.com, that's S-P-Y-F-U.com, and start downloading your competitors' keywords now. Try it free. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at mock speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. We're back with more Next Gen Now. Here's Rudina Ciceri. Welcome back to Next Gen Now. I'm Rudina Ciceri and I'm joined by Dr. Brad Barron's author and futurist about technology trends, the connected experiences, and of course, the future. So, Brad, what about the sort of experience around technologies driving us and helping us revert back to what we consider good societal norms? Do you think the fact that software and machines, quote unquote, uh, will are increasingly having the tendency to become more social will enable us to get our eyes off of the uh, devices, off of the pervasive screens and more onto each other to have real-world conversations? Or is that behavior dead and there is nothing that can bring it back? Well, I, I, that's, a, that's a big question. Let <laughs> I'm, me, I'm trying. <laughs> I, I don't think anything is ever going to kill our desire to touch and be touched by the other members of our species. And I think in some ways, if you bear down on the two different notions of friction, that can really help uh, to, to bring, make this clear. Because when we're talking about friction in a business sense, we're almost always talking about friction as a bad thing. We want right. things to be frictionless. But if you think about friction in a 
personal sense, most of the big moments that we have in life are about friction. It's about your first kiss. It's about the first time you hold your child. It's about the first dance after you've gotten married. Moments where we touch each other and are touched. And so I think there's nothing about technology that can kill our desire to have contact with people. The the challenge is that frequently the technology lures our attention away from the people in front of us uh, into the magic mirror that we're holding in our hand or have in our pocket. So I was going to look at a different example or sort of try to contrast it with another example. There is a general perception that the millennials as a generation, for example, because of all the devices, because of all the video content, because of all the apps that are competing for their attention, are no longer reading. They're certainly not reading as much in the form of traditional books. Yet, I heard the statistic that there is more written content being consumed today than it has ever been before. So I'm wondering whether there is the quality, for example, of content that's being consumed that's poorer, worse, there is a negative connotation. Is it because the millennials are speaking in 140 character type lingo thanks to Twitter? Is it the hashtag type of speak? If this quantity of content and reading, which generally we would think would be something valuable, has gone up, has the quality gone down? And is that a societal sort of consequence that we have to live with as a society, but it's in large part due to all this new world of technologies and consumer technologies? Any point of view on that? Well, I have a point of view on most things. When it comes to this... <laughs> Let me caution in first, if we talk about change without the value judgment initially, I think we're in, in better shape than to presume that a change is always bad. And so, you know, the problem, everybody loves to beat up on the millennials. And the problem with the way people talk about millennials is that they think that most of their behaviors are written in laundry pen, that they're indelible. So a few years ago, everybody was saying that millennials didn't care about privacy. They were going to let it all hang out forever. And the problem is that was not true. We're seeing increasingly that millennials are interested in things like privacy. And the reason they're interested in things like privacy is because they now have jobs and mortgages and children and they have things to protect. We don't want to mistake life stage for generation. So, so that's the first thing. So I'm sorry, can you elaborate of not mistaking life stage for generation? Yeah, lots of people do lots of foolish things when they're young. And you, then you get older and you get a little bit more mature and you stop doing some of the foolish things that you did when you were young. And so I had this one kid who worked for me who uh, when I friended him on Facebook, he on the one hand uh, accepted the friendship. But before he did, he went in and sanitized his profile because he thought that I probably as his boss's boss shouldn't see the picture of him uh, with the bong uh, in, at, a, at a college party with his oh, shirt dear. off. And, and this was somebody who I thought was uh, pretty mature for his age to realize before he simply said, oh, okay, I'll accept Brad's uh, friendship request on Facebook. I should probably go do something about this. By the way, Brad, you got to get with the program. He, he friended, he accepted you or he friended you or you friended him. Come on, get the verb right. I'm sorry. Sometimes, uh, sometimes it's the nomenclature escapes me. So the, here's the thing that my friend Carol Phillips, and she is from Brand Amplitude and also teaches 
teaches at Notre Dame talks about. She has written a really remarkable thing called We're All Millennials Now. What's interesting about millennials is that their technology consumption patterns are actually contagious. And so if you see the way they start texting or sharing photographs or doing things, that that behavior will start to uh, affect the behavior of people older than them in generations ahead of them and also younger than them. So what's intriguing about them is not that they're never going to change. It's that when they do adopt a technology and they start using it, then some of their practices will start to become pervasive. So what I think is fascinating. Yeah, and as a venture capitalist, I look at it from a business and adoption of new and disruptive products point of view and investments that I evaluate. And I'll tell you, this is not uh, perhaps scientific, but it's certainly the trend that actually it's the 16, 17, 18-year-olds that start to drive adoption. And we've seen that. We saw that with Snapchat and we saw that back in the day with Facebook and, you know, they're the ones who experiment and tell each other and drive reality. But the second element, it's usually re- around something that's mischievous as well. You're not seeing utility type, get a better grade, you know, on your homework type app go viral. You're seeing the tinders of the world swipe left if you don't like somebody or whatever the, the direction is. And the Snapchat, yeah, mom and dad has told me about privacy, so it should disappear in a few seconds. So I'm safe now if I do something mischievous because it goes away. So it's an interesting dynamic. But I agree with your point that I think it's the youngsters now probably soon to be Generation Z that drives a lot of the virality. But it's all around mischievous. And it probably has to do with life stage. I don't know. But they're the ones influencing the older, you know, the older generations and the ones that follow for sure. I don't I want to nod in. I don't necessarily think it's mischief so much as it's play. I think that when you have a platform that allows you to do things with it that maybe the platform didn't already think was going to happen, that's where things get very, very exciting. And we got podcasts like on this show out of the iPod. And I don't think when Apple created the iPod, they imagined podcasts would be a thing. When Facebook first started, they allowed people one photograph and they saw that people started changing their profile pic multiple times a week, sometimes multiple times a day. That led them to create a photo sharing uh, component to Facebook, which is one of the things that drove its incredible growth. And so play, I think, can be mischief, could be uh, sort of less negative than mischief, is the key component to adoption for most of these technologies. I agree with you up to a point. Facebook, it turns Uh out, they were checking out girls' pictures, right? So I don't know if that's just play or mischief, but, you know, it's a multi, multi, multi multi-billion dollar company, so we won't worry or cry for them at any time soon. So let's talk a little bit about the emerging, the joys and oys of the new paradigm. Warn us and give us the ethical dilemmas that lie ahead of us and how should one, whether it's coming at it from a embedded in the technology world like myself or just an average day user and consumer of technologies, what should we expect and how should we think about what are the upsides and the oys, as you call them, of the new paradigm? The, the joy of uh, some of these technologies are that you get to see things that you hadn't seen before. 
whether that's wearing a Fitbit or a Jawbone or an Apple Watch and getting to track your workout and, and have information about your fitness goals that are nicely and tidily presented to you on the one hand, which is very exciting. But the OI part is it's one more thing to manage. And, and in each case, when you add something, you also add a responsibility. So today, at the end of the day, I have to plug in my book, my phone, and my watch. I never had to plug my book in back in the old days. But now if you have a Kindle, you have a tablet, you have to manage that. All of these sensors and devices that we can have in our environments, all of them are things that we have to manage. That's the OI part of it. The idea that if we have 80 sensors in our clothing, at the end of the day, you're going to have to plug it in. With Owlet, which we were talking about before, up until very recently, you never had to say, oh, wait, I have to go plug the baby's sock in. That just wasn't something that was a burden for parents 10 years ago. So you always want to look at the new responsibility that a new technology creates. Because there's a benefit, but there's also a cost to that benefit. And that's what I mean. When it comes to having all of this information, it's incredible. It's fantastic. It's also distracting. And... It's, we're very good at seeing the benefit of these things. We're not as good at factoring in that we have to then do new things in order to manage these new processes. Got it. So, um, Brad, we're, we're almost out of time. If there were a couple of last teasing thoughts or remarks for our audience, maybe as a teaser to a next show and another interview, if you'll indulge us, because I know you're doing some interesting work around smart cars and other projects, what would those parting thoughts on this topic be? And maybe one teasing thought on a future topic. I would say that the most important question that you can ask yourself when you're looking at an investment, a new technology, something you want to do, something you want to rent, something you want to engage with, is to think about what else it could be. The most powerful force that we have in our lives is inertia because we don't ever want to change a lot of the things that are lying around us. And a subset of inertia is this thing called confirmation bias, where you have a glimmer of an idea about something, and then you get a little bit of evidence, and you interpret all of that evidence in the most powerful and positive light for your initial idea. The people who are the most powerful thinkers, yourself included, who I admire, are the ones who can look and go, hmm, what else could this be? Or, hmm, what if I'm wrong? That is the most powerful question I think that one can ask. In terms of things that I'm super excited about, although also dreading, I'm very intrigued by self-driving cars. I think the same kinds of infrastructure problems that I was talking about earlier with the charging stations for electrical vehicles will quickly become into focus with autonomous vehicles. And that's a fascinating topic. Of course, it could be, it could change, the dynamics could change fairly quickly if there is a major breakthrough on battery lives and the dynamic between that and energy and how, what cars burn and do not burn and what they consume and don't consume. But also then, of course, we have the whole body of legal laws and, and legal uh, requirements and what happens if there is an accident. Is it the, uh, you know, OS's fault or is it the driver's fault? But that is a topic that I look forward to exploring with you in another show, in another segment. With that, we are out of time. I want to thank Dr. Brett Behrens for joining me today and my producer, Brasco, for another great show. 
Of course, I thank you, our listeners, for partaking in this edition of NextGen Now. New episodes of NextGen Now air Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. If there is a topic you'd like for me to cover, please tweet me at rudina11, that's R-U-D-I-N-A, and the number 1 and 1. I'm Rudina Ceseri, and I look forward to speaking with you next time right here on NextGen Now. 